0: Recently, bond yields are rising But broadly speaking, the returns that you can get from cash or bonds Are still not particularly high So what is the outlook for such instruments? How can we better work our cash So that it returns us better than what it is in the current market situation? There are tools to explore From cash management apps to trader endowment to high yield Asian bonds We went around to discuss the different ideas and possibilities That one can participate in to maximise their value on cash Welcome to another Chills with TFC session in this series. We hope to bring on interesting, relevant people to help us learn better from various perspectives. Life is not always about learning from people that you already agree with. Perspectives shape a rounder thinker. So, in our pursuit of the life we love, our managing our finance as well, our guest today is a couple that have built an interesting financial blog, commenting on multi-asset investing with the fun retro gaming graphics. They both started their career in the financial space, analyzing reads stocks, and advising high-net worth clients so let's welcome peter and deborah from invest quest for the sake of reference this episode was recorded on 29th april 2021
1: you know, bond is not something that a lot of retail guys will talk about, right? right. Oh,
0: yeah. so
2: few. What do you <laughs> yeah. mean? It's like a, a really small minority. Yeah, yeah it's,
1: it's like, it's like really non, non-existent, right? So, yeah. can, can you kind of give us a little bit of idea, like, where do you see the bond market moving? And, you know, like, you know, the general idea is that, like, oh, interest rate's so low, yeah. right? How, how to make money from this, yeah. from this
3: space? So, actually, your question is actually a two-part question, mm. right? Because bonds are actually impacted by two factors. Right, One is um, obviously the interest rate environment. But the second factor when you're investing in corporate bonds is also what, you call what is known as a credit spread, right? the compensation you're getting for investing into a risky asset. Mm. Right? A riskless asset would be something like a Singapore government bond or a US government bond. Mm. Whereas a corporate bond, you know, even if you invest in a, uh, you know, a government-linked company like SIA or Capital, you're still taking an element of uh, corporate, corporate default risk. Right? So maybe just to cover uh, the first aspect, right, the interest rate environment, how, how is it looking like at the moment? Uh, so for the interest rate, most people just think of it as one number. It's actually a spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. There is short-term interest rates. There's also what is more known as longer-term interest rates or long-term yields, which can be proxied by stuff like your US 10-year treasury bond, your 30-year treasury bonds. So maybe I'll cover a bit on the short-term interest rate first. I'll let the uh, the longer-term yields be, be explained by Deborah a bit. So for the short-term interest rate, actually governments or, or central banks actually have a large say in influencing this short-term rate. So for example, if you look to the US, uh, the central bank would be the Federal Reserve, right? And they are the one who sets what the Fed funds rate is. Mm. And currently, they set, set it to 0 to 0.25%. Yes. Um, obviously, to stimulate the economy. And if you look at what the expectation of, you know, when the next rate hike is going to be. Um, actually, the base case is in 2024 onwards. Yes. Which means that in the next few years, likely we're not going to see short-term interest rates going much higher. Mm. Because even in the local market, we are quite influenced by, you know, rates set in the in, by other major economies like yes, the of US. Course,
1: especially the US. Yeah.
3: Yes. So, you know, when it comes to our bank deposit rates, fixed deposit rates here, I think we will still be hovering at, where you know it's currently at in the next one to two years.
1: Mm. Same for yeah. mortgage.
3: Uh, same. As so it's an for, extension of same. Yeah. So right? same, same as for mortgages. Mm. Okay. Most okay.
1: Likely. So so, you're saying that short term interest rates are very affected by what the government does, mm. how they set, because they're essentially the referee of the market. Like. They say it's like that, and every every other bond will kind of reflect, you know, um, yes. re- reference to that to that kind of interest rates. Yes. Right. Uh, but they don't actually have direct control. You know, in the markets. Yeah. So
3: again, also it depends on country. So mm. for example, in Singapore, actually MES doesn't really set the interest rate, right? It's quite f- it's quite freely moving. But in certain countries like the US, actually they do have a say like what the Fed funds rate is, right? Mm. So I think it really depends uh, which country we're looking at. But given that Singapore is such an open kind of market economy, we are very impacted by what's going on around the world. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
1: Then what about long-term
2: So for long-term interest rates, they're expected to increase steadily as the global economy recovers. Now, when you're analysing long-term interest rates, people tend to look at factors like expectations of economic growth, uh, inflation, so so on and so forth. So looking at these factors, they're all pointing towards higher long-term interest rates moving forward. So now summarising what Peter has mentioned and I have just talked about, um, analysts are expecting what is known as a steepening in the yield curve, where short-term interest rates remain anchored and long-term interest rates uh, increase. Yep.
1: Mm-hmm. So then as retail investors, how, how do we capitalise in such a situation?
3: So for retail investors, actually, it's very tough now because for us, a lot of our you know, emergency savings tends to be uh, invested in you know, obviously your your traditional bank savings accounts. Uh, and more recently, there's also been the emergence of a lot of robo-advisors mm. uh, that have this cash, what you call cash management accounts, mm. or even a lot of the insurance, uh, you know, even Singtel Dash, uh, gigantic Singlife account. These are all like insurance savings accounts that have recently come onto the scene mm. to give uh, local retail investors a slightly higher yield than what they're getting from bank accounts.
4: Mm.
3: But with the overall market interest, you know, the short-term rates being so low, you know, we've also been seeing across traditional banks and you know, even on these cash management accounts, yields just generally have been quite suppressed. In fact, a lot of banks in the last one, two years, you would know they've been cutting your interest rates. Right? Three years ago, it was very easy for us to get you know, a 2-3% kind of return or interest rate on our savings account as long as we did some criteria like uh, salary crediting, Paying a few bills you know gyroing a few bills or using a credit card from the bank but today you know if you want to get a one percent interest rate it's really going to be very tough <laughs> <laughs> even There's for a lot ro- of estuaries
1: yeah. in the one percent interest rate yeah, yeah. Right. Mm.
3: and even mm. for the robo advisors we have seen a lot of them revising down their projected return rates yes. to reflect this more realistic kind mm. of return expectation moving forward
1: mm. can you help us understand a little bit like how do they derive these kind of
3: returns um, so for robo-advisor cash management accounts, a lot of them are invested in a mix of uh, money market kind of instruments. It's kind of short-term debt instruments. Some of them have short-term bonds also, right? And all of these are very heavily impacted by what the short-term mm. short term yields are. Yeah. Essentially, right? they are correlated with the short-term rates, Yeah, right? okay, Correct.
1: Okay. And then for, for some of these insurance companies, is it all the same? Are they all using money market funds or...?
3: For the insurance companies, we, we can't really see what they're invested in. Mm. But um, just from my point of view, if you're an insurance company and you need to raise capital, right, you have a few methods you can do so. One, you can, of course, uh, you know, get money from these policy owners and give them their 1% percent, Or you could go to the uh, capital markets, issue a bond and pay 3 4%. So for them right now, this could be potentially a very cheap way to get financing. Mm. Right? Um, insurance companies are not the same as banks. Because banks have a uh, deposit base, right? They can just go out to depositors, and they get this very very cheap form of funding. So the the best alternative for insurance companies is to issue this kind of <laughs> yes, uh, yes. Yeah, savings, short term mm. savings accounts. So sometimes. it's a
1: strategy to to acquire more capital for yeah. for them. Okay, okay, and then so so it's definitely affected, you know, relative to the markets right? because they don't want to be mm. overpricing themselves also. So in general, I think all of them will will be performing similar lah. Whatever option, whatever <laughs> option you take, they're all peg. They're all pegging against each other, right? It's 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 not really a way that they they make a lot of money, but it's just more, I I think it's, it's a lot just, more about acquisition.
3: Yeah, client acquisition, client acquisition.
1: The, you know, it's just kind of keep you within the ecosystem. You become comfortable with us. Mm-hmm. upsell, upsell, upsell other things, yeah. right? In in general, that's kind of that's yeah. kind of what
3: it is. Yeah. So like for the Sing Life, a lot of us actually went to the Sing Life account earlier like last year because they offered quite a good uh, return mm-hmm. rate, mm-hmm. and then. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, towards the end part of last year, you know, they launched like a new product, mm. things an investment link kind of plan, mm. they call it Grow. And obviously, if you are really you really have a single life <laughs> account, it's uh, you know it's an easy way to just cross-sell. Yes, yeah. yes,
1: yes. And that that's the that's the world turning into like the whole digital finance kind of, mm. you know, where, where you see a lot of social media tech elements that are that are, have been used in a lot of other kind of consumption platforms, even in the digital finance world. Right? So I think listeners need to be a little bit more aware of these kind of things. Right? Like companies are doing these things that it used to be okay because Lazada do it. Right, mm-hmm. And you're just buying buying things, you know, it's fine. But now, you know, financial companies are using a lot of these kind of like tech strategies. Yeah. Right? And I think people need to be very aware of.
2: I mean, another thing that I think is worth mentioning is that when there tends to be a significant difference between, let's say, the projected returns for uh, cash management accounts offered by the different robo-advisors, there may be differences in the underlying funds mm. and the risks that they pose. Mm. It, it might be a marginal difference, but that is what can result in that higher return that they offer to you. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So definitely you need to understand what is the underlying mm. instruments that they use, right? Don't just, yeah. oh, on 1.5, you put 1.5 like that, right? Yeah, yeah. You want to yeah. know what's going on, right? Yeah. 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 But in, in a general environment where interest rates are, are so low, right? Um, how, how, how can I make more money?
2: <laughs> so it's
1: a spectrum. <laughs> because it's going to stay yeah. like that for a while, right? Yes, Based on what, what we
3: are projecting 2024. Correct. correct. Mm. So it's a spectrum. I think for many people here... I think gold-based investing has become a in-thing, right? Gold. goal Go- okay. based investing. Gold. Okay. Yeah. So, for, I guess for your emergency funds, advisors will say, you know, keep 6 to 9 to 12 months of your expenses as an emergency fund. And this can be deployed into, you know, stuff that's a bit more liquid, very, very low risk, which is what we've been talking about. You know, it mm. could be your traditional bank savings account, mm your insurance uh, savings accounts mm. and even some of the robo-advisor mm. uh, accounts, even though those are actually... The cash management accounts actually are not principal protected right? It's mm. still subject to market volatility. Yes. Mark-to-market. Mm.
1: Would,
3: if you, you are able, would you guys
1: consider mm, uh, government bonds as risk-free in that sense?
3: So, the credit risk is very low, yes, but it's yes. still subject to interest, still rate, interest rate risk. Okay, right? interest rate. So, for example, if... Let's talk mm. about 10-year US treasury bonds. right? Most people... Think of it as a risk-free asset. Yeah, yeah. But from let's say September October last year, ten-year treasury yields was was at zero point six percent. Now it's at one point six percent. So that one percent move in interest mm-hmm. or in yields would have actually caused your ten-year treasury bond to decline by let's say five six percent. Mm-hmm. So actually, for the first quarter of this year, the U.S. ten-year treasury bond market actually experienced the worst performance since nineteen eighty. Wow. Yeah. Even though you consider it a risk-free asset.
1: Mm, mm, mm. So, be cognizant about this thing, right?
3: Yes, correct.
1: Okay, okay. Yeah. So then, if I don't want to participate in the markets, you know, I just want very, like, legit risk-free. <laughs> legit you know? risk-free. Yeah. So, what are some ways that, yeah. that we can participate in?
3: So, if you have a slightly longer time horizon, mm. uh, there will be some insurance companies that will market endowment policies, mm. right? So, mm. I think one um, insurer that recently came to market uh, was Great Eastern. Right, they launched a three-year endowment policy that offers a 1.55% per annum. Three years? three years, That's very short. Yeah. yeah, so 1.55% return per annum and fully guaranteed as long as you hold it to maturity. If you actually went to get a three-year fixed deposit from a bank, the return is only about 0.6%. Mm. So you're mm. still seeing this. Um, I wouldn't call 1.55% very high, but you know, given that it's uh, it's guaranteed it's on maturity. Relative, but- you know, for start for cash that you don't really need in the short mm, term, mm. and yet you want some guarantee and you want a slightly higher yield, then you know, endowment plans potentially could make sense. Mm, mm. Especially when they are shorter and shorter these days, right? Yeah. So for endowment policies, they are marketed across a wide range. Um, it could be as short as one year. Uh, you know, even for myself, my family we have bought into one-year policies last year. We wanted to park cash in a yielding account that is more than like one percent. So we mm. actually had some policies just one year. Um, but obviously, for endowment policies, they can stretch to as long as forty, fifty years. Mm. Yes, and it's really to cater to different goals that investors might have.
1: Mm. And that was actually the standards in the past. Mm-hmm. Endowment plans were very long, at least in the in the one is uh, very prevalent in the market, right? Retail yeah. amongst the auntie uncles, the that's it's everybody when they think of endowment plans, thirty years. Yeah, you know, it's it's nobody think of endowment plans as a three year, one year kind of thing, right? So and it-
2: it used to be a very popular investment uh, option Mm. and it still is for a lot of people. So currently, I think there are 2.3 million endowment Mm. policies that have been incepted in Singapore.
1: Nice. Okay, just to give everyone a little bit of context, in the past, endowment plans were paying out a lot more interest.
2: To yes, <laughs> to but be then fair, yes. to be fair, they were paying out a lot more interest, but the interest rate was also much higher mm, mm, in general. Yeah. So yeah.
1: back then, during the the high the high days of twelve percent interest rates, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. But they were paying out at, at that kind of price, right? So, yeah. but it's it's still packed to the the market in yeah. in essence, right? Packed to the interest rates markets right? Mm-hmm. based on how it moves. Um, but I think for a lot of people, when you hear your older generation saying endowment now <laughs> right? They don't 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 flame them because mm. at that point in time, yeah, they were getting that kind of rates and it's locked in, right? The rates mm-hmm. are locked in. So over the extended period of time, they were getting that, that kind of very good rates uh, relative to the market, right? But these days, things are different.
4: Yeah.
1: But I know you guys are doing the whole traded endowment thing and you, you're not alone, right? In mm-hmm. the market, right? Uh, I think Philips Capital, they also do that. You know, and uh, a few other companies, they also do that. Not sponsored. So, okay. I mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> must say, huh? not sponsored. Huh? But how does that then then play out in this thing?
3: So... The Actually, the funny thing is the reason we got into the space is because we actually wanted to buy these trader endowments as investors first, mm. right? Because mm. it was about three years ago, um, I was looking at the inventory for some of the brokers. They were offering about, let's say, 4 to 4.5% four per annum pro, uh, projected returns for the investor um, for policies that were maturing in, let's say, 7 to 8 years' time. Mm. right? So these are not the policies that are 30 years away, right? It's mm. 7 to 8 years is still, I'll say, relatively medium-term And to get a four to four and a half percent projected return to me, was pretty decent because three years ago, the interest rate environment was really very low, right? If you're buying to high yield bonds at that time. Probably that's the kind of (laughs) expected Mm. return that you're getting Mm. for yourself. But the risk, the risk premium that you're paying. Risk could be higher, right? right? Mm. Because you could be buying a high yield bond with a five percent yield to maturity. Yeah. But there's also an element of default risk. Yes. Right. Because high yield bonds, on average, I think default rate is something like three plus percent Mm. per annum. Mm. So you are taking that kind of default risk. Mm. Uh, Personally, I was looking at something that. I was actually, I was looking for my parents, right? Because mm. my, my, my dad is 72 this year. Mm. And I wanted... And, and Don't want anything
1: exciting, ah. Uh, yeah, for I wanted Uncle something to be a bit more right? conservative. You, you want like, hey, confirm, yeah. I confirm. <laughs> I wanted to be more conservative? And three years ago, we
3: really were in a bull market for nine, let's say nine years, right? Mm. Mm. For a stock market. Mm. So I was not very confident in also, you know, putting a lump sum investment into the mm. stock market. Mm. At least not for my parents, uh, you know, retirement money. Mm. Yeah. And that's how we actually came across the space. Mm. Yeah. Mm.
1: So, so how how is it different then? Endowment versus trade endowment? So
3: the interesting thing about trade endowments is we would have bought it from the original policy owner, mm. right? If the original policy owner wants to surrender his policy prior to maturity, m- most people would think that they only have one option, which is mm. to surrender the policy back to the insurance company. Mm. Uh, but typically when they do that, the surrender value they get from the insurance company tends to be very, very poor. Low ball, right? Yeah, especially in the... <laughs> The first few years, let's say if it's less than halfway through the, mm, the policy, mm. they could have lost almost half of whatever they had invested really? in the policy. Yeah, yeah,
2: yes. but it's not necessarily because of any greed on the part of the insurance company. Mm, it just mm. so happens that the insurance company has to pay for distribution costs. All mm. your agents. Which means agents. Which means <laughs> agents. Uh, distribution costs so very <laughs> very
1: sterile. <laughs> uh? That's very
2: nice way put it. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah. because of that, that's already a sunk cost for them. And mm, they cannot... Yeah. Give you back that amount, yeah. yeah. And actually, <laughs> the insurance the company way.
3: doesn't earn from the policy owner surrendering the policy, right? So, if let's say the insurance company gives a poor value to the that policy owner who surrendered, actually, the other existing policy owners in that plan actually benefit in a way. Mm. So, the intention of giving a poor surrender value. It's to Uh, to actually to discourage you because you're supposed to hold it to maturity Mm. and to protect the other policy owners who are currently invested in the same plan. Mm. And to give everybody a little bit more context,
1: uh, insurance companies and insurance agencies and the retail guys are three different parties. uh, Yeah. Yeah. You know, because a lot of people say insurance company, insurance company, but I think because we're talking about exactly the issuer of the product. We yeah. Yeah. need to be clear that the insurance company are the ones that issue the product. Mm. Your interaction as a retail individual tend to be with the agency. Mm. They are the ones that sell you. So that's the sunk cost yeah. with the distributor, right? Yeah. Okay, okay. So so then, in that sense, um, how does Trader then work then? You know, yeah. Because they don't want to encourage you, then how does it work?
3: Yeah. So for the person who's thinking of surrendering his policy prior to maturity... Right. he actually has a second option that many people don't really know about, which is he can actually sell this policy in the secondary market. Mm. So in Singapore, there are, I'll say, maybe about five or high single-digit players who can actually purchase such policy. do this as a business, mm. right? and they offer the policy owner um, a value that's above the surrender value. Mm. Right? Only then will it make sense for the person to then sell to these of brokers. Course, of course. So ourselves included. Mm. Right, so when we first started buying these policies, we, also, we had a, obviously a dual mandate. One is Duo our personal dual mandate. Dual mandate! Dude, yeah. <laughs>
4: you went corporate <properly. laughs> We got dual mandate. We write
0: this in. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: okay, same, same thing. Yeah, I, course, l- I like the corporate
4: yeah, He's Right, he, the uh, more he
2: reads finance news every uh, day, uh, so uh, after a while, it just like yes. in. <laughs> yeah.
1: Go ahead, go ahead.
3: So for ourselves, obviously we have we got buying these policies as an investment for ourselves, mm. right? So we have to mm. hit yeah. a minimum threshold to make sense for ourselves. Yes. But at the same time, our intention is not to lowball the policy owner surrendering the policy. Mm. Right. Typically, the person Who's surrendering it is really not in a very good si- situation himself. Of that's course. That's right? surrendering it. Of course. It, right. So we wanted to also bring in a social aspect to mm. to mm. buying these policies. Mm. So, so far, based on what we've purchased, um, I think we've managed to offer about 25% above the surrender value.
2: 25%, mm. yeah.
3: Yeah, so I think that is something that I think is well above um, market at the moment compared mm. to some of the other brokers.
2: Some of the other brokers will, they see on their website that they offer 5-10% to 10% above the surrender value mm. just for context. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. So their margins are much thicker in that sense.
2: Much thicker because mm. they know that, let's say, let's say the uh, policy owner only knows about them as mm. the only broker in the market or thinks of them as the only broker in the market. Then, you know, they just have the chance to lowball, right? Mm. Even if you give 2% higher than the surrender value, theoretically, like, you're still better than them going to the insurer. So they mm. might as well just offer you as low as they can. Mm. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. because but they're it also not,
3: depends on um, the companies competitive edge, what they're trying to achieve, right? So there are some companies which will try to have an edge in terms of marketing, right? So they'll they'll go on the radio, post on newspapers, uh, have a a larger distribution network, but that also will feed into higher costs Mm -hmm. for the firm, right? So for ourselves, so I wouldn't say that they're offering a a lower fee because, you know, they are getting a bigger profit, but I I think it just depends on what business model you're trying to work with. Mm -hmm. At least for ourselves, we try to work with a model that is, to keep costs as low as possible so that, you know, we can give a good price to the policy owner. But subsequently, you know, when we buy it over, we'll also be looking for investors that we can sell it to, Mm.
4: right? Mm.
3: Can you paint me a little bit of a picture? What is a typical endowment plan today
1: looks like, right? Let's say there's a 30-year endowment plan. What is the kind of expected returns that I can get? And then versus a trader endowment that I I kind of buy
3: from somebody halfway, right? How, How does it look like? So maybe I I won't use a 30-year example because for traded endowments, typically we have bought it halfway into the life, right? Mm. So if it was a 30-year endowment, it would now probably be left with 15 years. Mm. So maybe use example of a 15-year new endowment. If you went to an insurance company today to buy a 15-year endowment plan, the expected return for the policy owner likely would be around, let's say, 3% per annum, Mm. right? When you look at what you call the benefit illustration that's provided by the insurance company, a lot of them will show a base case of a 4.75% investment return. This uh, rate is actually legislated by MES. Mm. Uh, It's it's a relatively realistic rate of what the insurance company is able to achieve um, in in terms of investment returns, Mm. right? But the policy owner doesn't get a 4.75% return because you need to minus off, like what we mentioned just now, the distribution costs, Mm. the cost of managing all these investments. Mm. So for the policy owner, typically he gets about 3% per annum. Mm. For a trader endowment, which is what many people refer to as a second-hand endowment policy, mm. typically what we see in the market right now is that for a 15-year uh, policy left to maturity, you can probably get about 4.5% per annum return.
1: Okay. Right. So okay.
3: it is significantly more, you know, you think from 3% to 4.5%, it's a 1.5% difference, it's but 50%. actually it's 50% yeah.
1: more, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So So essentially, what I'm hearing is I am... Uh, picking up something that is like, someone already paid halfway already, right? They they subscribe to this endowment plan and they've already paid halfway through. Something happened, they decided to, to drop it. So then when I buy it, I have to kind of pay up all the sums that they've already paid in some ways to, to the individual that's trying to sell it, mm-hmm. right? And in this process, they get back a little bit more. and But then
3: uh, I kind of continue paying that
1: premium. Mm-hmm.
3: Is, is that kind of how it is? So... Like the reason why the why I mentioned right, the yield can be a bit higher for a second-hand development mm. is actually because for the investor, he might actually not pay what the original person paid. Mm.
1: Yeah, for right? sure. Because if we're basing off surrender value. Yeah, right? basing mm. off
3: surrender value. So if you're paying less than what the guy has paid, that's why you're getting a higher yield. That could be one reason. Mm. The second reason is because that the policy has really, let's say it's been running for 15 years, right? The, the policy has set time to accumulate some sort of investment returns and declare annual bonus for these 15 years. Mm. This could be the other element that's driving the higher returns for the second-hand policy relative to a first-hand policy. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash acast and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Okay,
1: okay it sounds very pretty, right? Mm-hmm. And everything sounds pretty, Anna. It's like what are some of the risk factors, then Um, In terms of
2: some of the risk factors, let let me first cover the risks which are similar to the risks of a newly incepted endowment policy. Okay. Right? Mm. So the first is if the underlying participating fund uh, that the insurer holds um, performs badly, then there's a chance that they may not be able to pay out the maturity value that they had projected. Mm. Right? Mm. So this is a risk for a new policy. And it's also a risk that trader endowment policies will face.
1: It's the same, right? Yeah, it's the same. But then how do I evaluate the underlying fund then?
2: You generally will not you, have You don't you uh, don't know, right? You wouldn't know yeah, about they, that. They, yeah. It's
1: just a you know endowment essentially you're trusting the insurer and then mm-hmm. they will take the money and then they have their own investment mandate okay. <laughs> that mm-hmm. they will do on their own. Right? So so you don't you
3: don't ex- actually get to evaluate that. Mm-hmm. You get to see the historical Uh, performance of these Mm. participating funds across the insurance companies. So, you know, for the astute um, investor, some of them might want to avoid certain insurance companies because they might feel that, you know, historically, the performance of their funds hasn't met up to the 4.75% projection, right? If you look at, let's say, the last 10 years, for example, Mm. right? So there are ways to, you know, differentiate across the insurers Mm. marginally, And the second way is also to look at the asset location in the participating fund, Mm. right? Some insurers, you know, if the stock market did really well this year and you see that their asset location was more tilted towards the equities, potentially, you know, that this year, this insurance company is probably going to do a bit better. Mm. But are you going to be getting more? If if they perform better? Uh, Yes. So actually, Mm. the projected maturity value can be revised upwards as well. So Mm. I've seen such instances. But I'll say that over the longer term, like the last 10 years, it's more likely that they revise down just because the interest rate environment has been going a bit lower. Mm, okay, okay. That's cool. That's cool. So for Trader Endowment policies, they'll be sold by a second-hand policy broker, mm, right? Which, which you guys are one of them. Correct. Yes. Mm. So when you're buying from a second-hand policy broker, we are not financial advisors, mm. right? So I'm not going to be able to tell you oh, based on your financial goals, you should be buying this, this and this, mm. or you should be, this is how you should be looking about your, your portfolio holistic Essentially selling a product,
1: right? Correct.
3: We're just mm. a broker. Mm. So you have to have had a think about what your financial goals are and how you're going to achieve them on your personal basis. And, you know, potentially you would have really asked your financial consultant, right? You shouldn't rely on the broker to give you advice like this. Um, a second risk that you will face when you're dealing with a second-hand broker is that for trade endowment policies, they are not a uh, asset class that's regulated by MES. So it, mean, yeah, yet, yet. <laughs> so, so it means, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what is
1: always, I yeah. think it's,
2: it's still the space is still too small, mm, so mm, it's mm. unlikely that MES will yeah. come into. I evaluate. know in
1: the
3: UK they already have structured products around yeah. trader endowments. Yeah. So yeah. so in fact in the UK in Australia there are mutual funds that actually hold mm. trader endowments, yeah. right? And course you know that I might mention they're yielding for four and a half percent. So these mutual funds are able to distribute this four four and mm. a half percent as income. Mm. Right. So it's almost like a income income fund. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah. it's diversified across insurers. Yeah it across different material yeah so, uh, managed, yeah. Mm. so I just now what I mentioned is that this space is not currently regulated by MES mm. so if you do purchase a policy it's a bit like going to carousel and buying an item there right
1: I don't know how I feel about <laughs> that I
3: don't know how I feel about that like. it's, yeah. like, it's so, like oh
1: you're buying a financial product it's like going carousel <laughs> that, right it's like... yeah. so
3: that is, a <laughs> risk. that is a risk that the, the investor has to take mm. Um, mm. so you, if anything goes wrong you shouldn't be approaching MES for it because it's not a uh, regulated space by MES, mm. what you can do is you can go to the Consumer Protection Act instead. Mm. Yeah, Look for case, huh? Go Everything for look for case. case. Yeah.
1: So, yeah. Um. Which
2: makes sense. I, I mean, that makes it even more important to kind of do your due diligence on the different brokers and see mm. which one gives you more disclosures, et cetera. So yeah.
1: fundamentally, you're reliant on, you know, the trust with the broker.
2: Trust with the broker as well as yourself. Mm. They have to, I mean, you have to educate yourself on what the product is, mm. right? Because if you don't know enough about the product, it will be difficult to know what people are not telling you. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm.
3: So one way to get around this issue also is to conduct the transaction, mm. which is what we always do. We always conduct the transaction at the insurance, uh, insurance company's office mm. so that when we go through the terms of the policy, it will not be m- me telling you what the policy terms are. I would have already told you earlier but you can then clarify and confirm everything with an independent um, you know, customer service staff at the insurance company. Mm. Right? And I think in that way, the risk for you will then be much more mitigated. Mm.
4: Mm.
1: Okay, at least you get clarity of what does mm. this particular policy covers and all the, all the you know, interesting things inside a structured product, mm. la, essentially. Mm. Okay, okay, that's cool. That's cool. So so are, are you seeing more and more people pick up on this, on this uh idea and how does it then sit into people's broader. You know, a uh, financial plan because, like, exactly like what you pointed mm. out, right? Yeah, in the UK, it's becoming like an income fund. Yeah, you know, so, so, although I know you cannot give exactly like oh, how to do it, how to do it, right? But it's just more like a, where do you think people can adopt Trader Endowment, you know, as part of their
3: portfolio? So, for me, the Trader Endowment space would cater for people who have specific goals. Mm. at certain parts of their life.
1: That's the beauty about endowments, right? Correct. Because, you know, it's like... Essentially, uh, I give you money and then you give me a fixed Mm. return. It's like a trust-based thing, you know? Limited market movements in it. Yeah.
3: Mm. So for some goals that you have, you know, it might not be compromisable for you. For example, you you just gave birth to a child and you know that in 18 years' time, he's going to college, right? So you know that his college education... The fees I you, for your kid. Yeah. <laughs> it's not compromisable. Yeah, it's right? not
1: compromisable, huh? Ah? You right. must go uni. You need huh? to
3: have a guaranteed amount of money at that point of time. <laughs> yes. And yes. obviously a lot of people, they know 18 years is quite far away, then mm. they invest in the stock market. But mm. you know, just in the if you're very sway mm. and during that year there's a downturn and you're down 30%, mm. do you really want to be liquidating your portfolio at mm. that point of time mm. to pay for a school fee? Mm. Probably that might not be the best option. So for endowment policy, or for the trader endowment policy also, there are two elements to it. Right, there's a guaranteed component at maturity and there's a non-guaranteed component. Mm. So at, at the very least, if you're buying a policy that's you know, 18 years away, you can see that minimally, if the insurance company declares zero bonus every year for the next 18 years, the maturity bonus is zero, mm. you know there's still this guaranteed amount, which mm. is obviously the, the most unlikely of scenarios, but at least mm. you're secure that that's enough for your child to go to mm. college. right? Mm. Okay, okay. so, so, so that-
2: it makes sense for those who are already considering endowment plans mm. uh, and they but they want a yield pickup, mm. right? Yeah. So then they see that, hey, how come trader endowment policies are offering better yields mm. and potentially for shorter amounts of time? Mm. Yeah, mm. that that is what makes it attractive to investors. But of oh, course, yeah.
3: there's two downside risks that the investors should take note of because there's always the good part, there's always <laughs> the yeah, bad yes, part. Yes. Also, right? yeah.
1: People always like to talk about the bad <laughs> part,
3: yes. Yeah. So the bad part is if you are buying it as a for the insurance component, mm. the trader endowment doesn't give the investor insurance coverage mm. for on his life. The insurance coverage is still on the original life assured, mm. right? Mm. So theoretically, if the original life assured, let's say if he passes on, the investor actually can claim the death benefit from the policy, and mm. typically that will be a favorable kind of uh, uh, thing for the for the new investor. Mm. But because they won't be in contact with each other, this will not. Likely be the case. You don't know the person. You won't be getting his death certificate. Typically, we just ignore the the insurance component. This is something that the investor will not likely be getting, mm, right? Mm. A second downside is that for a policy, you know that you're supposed to hold maturity, right? It's an illiquid vehicle. So when you think about, let's say, the 07 O8 crisis, right? There's some, there were quite a number of mutual funds that were holding these traded endowment, these endowment policies at the time. And during that period of time, obviously, a lot of people get very panicky, right? Everybody starts to sell uh, the mutual funds at the same time. Mm. But if the underlying asset is uh, illiquid, you know, it just it's doesn't work. It's hard for it them to work, drop right? it off, right? Mm. So this should be something that you're saving up up to a particular date, not mm. something that you're looking to sell again in like mm. the next one, two years.
1: Essentially, mm. the boring vehicle, right? Yeah. Not the exciting thing. Yeah. And you probably should have a plan for it in that sense. Yeah. Okay essentially people will explore a tool like that on their search for income, right? To to try to achieve a certain goal and have that kind of consistency, you know, and uh, make a better yield than you know, what is the current interest market out there, right? But what, what are some other tools that people can explore that in your view?
2: Um, think? I think it's possible to explore CPF top-ups, mm, right? Mm. If you top up to your... MediSave account... The 1M65 movement, is it? Yeah, yeah. the 1M65 <laughs> movement. Yeah. Mm. Um, if you top up to either your MediSafe account or your special account, you can earn 4% per annum, mm. right? The downside to that is that obviously if you're a young person, you cannot withdraw the money anytime you want, mm. right? Because mm. it's a long-term savings account. Yes. Um, but yeah, I think that's one major way that people can look to... Increase the yield on their cash. Uh, Peter, can you think of other ways?
3: Yeah. So, um, obviously, Singapore have has been encouraging people to top up their CPF, and there are obviously certain schemes where you can get tax, uh, obviously tax deductions on your top ups as well. Yeah. So let's say if now you are forty five years old already, and you know that you can withdraw your, uh, you know, some part of your CPF when you are fifty five, and you are currently having a marginal tax rate of let's say ten percent, right? So if you are getting a 10% tax deduction on your contribution to the CPF and you spread it over this 10-year period, actually mm. you're getting a, almost 1% extra yield yeah. a year, right? So actually you're, you're not getting 4%, you're actually potentially getting a, like almost a 5% type mm. of mm. Mm. return yes. in that sense. Yes. So I think that is something to me is, yeah, I think it's very, every Singaporean has c- CPF, right? So mm. it's something that I personally do every year, topping up my SA account, mm. topping up my MediSafe account. Mm. Yeah, mm.
1: So, Okay, okay.
3: I, I think I think that's cool, you know, um, but I think for
1: everybody they need to be very very aware, right? This is a one way track, huh? Yeah. But in correct. you know, nothing's gonna come out until you reach that that retirement retirement mm. age, right? I yeah.
2: think our most popular article today is our CPF article, right, yeah. Peter? Mm. Yeah. Five ways to optimize your, your CPF. CPF. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and
1: and those kind of articles uh tend to be very popular, right? In in the sense of like you know, five ways to do yes, something, ten yes. things you need to, mm. blah, 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 listicles, yeah. you know, right? as long as you're comprehensive, it gets shared very well. Yeah. Mm, right? Yeah. So, so that, that's, that's definitely part of it, you know. Mm. Uh, but of course, I think we, people have to also be aware, you know, of like, uh minimum sum, you know, yes. all those kind of things, CPF line, <laughs> all, it's all part of a thing, right? Because yeah. it's, it's the yeah. whole vehicle. Don't just look at it from one, from one component, Angle, right? Yes. Yeah. So you got to look at the whole vehicle before you like, oh, put money in. Yeah. You know, generally, that's kind of my take, mm. you know. But what about like uh, entering like what we talk about, like high yield bonds or like Chinese bonds, you know, those are like increasingly, there's a lot yeah. of discussion over yeah. there. So yeah, what is yeah. your take?
3: So if you look at the high yield bond space, um, just, let's say you just take a look at let's say US high yield bonds mm. typically you'll see them yielding about 45 maybe 5% yield to maturity and for many investors you know, that might sound like quite a high uh, attractive level for mm, them
4: mm.
3: but one thing that they need to note is they have to factor in the expected default losses for high yield, especially for high yield bonds mm. right? so for example the average default rate for US high yield bonds has been about 3% across, across the economic cycle and for a defaulted high yield bond, the recovery value is typically about 20 to 30 cents on the dollar. Right? Mm. So what that means is that you should be factoring in around 2 maybe 2.5% two of expected credit losses every year mm. from, you know, from whatever high yield bond portfolio that you have. So if you're getting a 4.5% yield to maturity, if you minus off 2 or 2.5% two in expected default losses, actually your, your expected return is only going to be about 2 2.5%, two which is in my view, you know, not very exciting, right? The high yield bond market now is not, it's definitely not cheap. Mm, mm. I think there are certain parts of the high yield market, which offers a relatively better relative value. So for example, if you look at the Asian uh, US dollar high yield space, um, the credit spreads over here are, are slightly wider. If you look at the yield to maturity of the Asian high yield bonds, you can still get about 7% kind of yield to maturity. Um, and historically, actually, the Asia, even though you know people think that Asia is like emerging markets, mm. but default rates are quite similar to that as the US high yield bonds, mm. right? So if you're getting seven percent and less you minus about three percent of expected default losses a year, you're at least getting this you know expected four percent return. Mm. So in that case, it's still not too bad. Mm. And you know if you look at the high yield bond market within Asia, it still hasn't recovered back to pre COVID levels, mm. whereas for the US side it recovered really quickly and it's really, really passed way past the pre-COVID levels. Yeah. Okay,
1: give, give us a little bit more clarity in the sense of like default rates, right? So what I'm hearing is, you know, if, if uh, the whole fund has like $100 million mm. and it, it yields at, you know, 4, 4%, but the whole $100 million will generally lose about 3% of its capital every year, essentially, because of yeah. defaults. Yeah. Right. Is, is that, is that what, that's I'm what I'm saying? saying. Yeah. That's okay. what I'm saying. So Correct. you factor that three percent loss, you know, uh, into the whole the whole portfolio, which yeah. you are part of. You're your fractional owner of the whole portfolio. Correct. Correct. So then, net net, maybe two three yeah. percent. Mm. Yeah. You know, but if you go to the Asian market, which mm. is currently still giving at about six to seven percent, you factor that two three percent loss, you still have about four five percent.
3: You have a bit more buffer in that yeah, sense. A yeah. A bit more buffer. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And actually, if you have the view that. Uh, credit spreads start to tighten mm. you actually might get a- additional capital appreciation as mm. well on top of the existing yield that you're getting on mm. the Asian high yield bonds because the bond market has not recovered yet has not fully recovered has not fully yeah. recovered yet so then there's still
1: that, that squeeze that can come correct. in correct um, wow, well, we're going very technical, huh? Yeah. Of course, okay. just now, you
3: know, earlier in, in the podcast, we were talking about two aspects of, uh, two factors that drive fixed income markets. Mm. One was interest rates, mm. one was on credit spreads. So this we are talking about the second element, credit spreads. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. Can Pay me a little bit, a, a clearer picture? Like, how does that work? Okay, so for example, if, just to just explain what a credit spread is. Yes, yes. So for example, if, let's say you have a US treasury bond, let's say it's, currently the yield is 1% per annum, mm. right? That's the risk-free rate. If you're buying to a corporate bond in the U.S. and let's say it's yielding three percent per annum, mm. the credit spread is this excess compensation you're get you're getting mm. for buying and taking this ex, uh, this credit risk. So the the credit spread will be two percent in that case. So when we look at the U.S. high yield bond market over the last 15 years, the average credit spread level has been about about five and a half percent, and currently it's about three point six percent. So it's the current level is quite near the f- lows of the last 15 years, mm, right? Mm. So you're not really getting in at a a great time, you're but not obviously paying, because... You're not, not, yeah, you're not getting yeah, the premium. Bank, you're not getting a bank for your buck. Yeah, but yeah. at the same time, because we are also on an economic recovery, so everyone has priced this in. Mm, yeah, mm, Okay. So
1: then in Asia, people have not priced it in. Correct. So that's the that's the, the beauty so, of the spread. So mm. Yeah. So in yeah.
3: Asia, the let's say you look at the last 10 years, the average credit spread for high U, you, hard currency, high, high U bonds here has also been around, let's say, five, uh, 5.5% but now the credit spreads uh, in Asia is 6.3%, mm. right? So it hasn't even recovered back to the historical average yet.
1: Mm. Is there a reason why? Mm. So help us understand. I know uh, correlation uh, is not causation. Uh, <laughs> now. We're not correct. trying to predict, you know, like why exactly, but just kind of give us some colour,
3: you know, so that, so that our, our listeners can get a clearer yeah. understanding. So I, I can think of two big reasons, right? One is last year, obviously in the US, you know, they announced a lot of, uh, they, uh, they supported the bond market by purchasing not only government securities, but they also supported it by buying investment-grade bonds and even higher bonds, Mm. right? These were all bought by the Federal Reserve, right? Yeah, they were just buying. (laughs) Right, just buying. Mm. So obviously, this also drives higher, the price of of higher bonds over there drives down the credit spreads. But in Asia, we don't really have this equivalent uh, artificial buyer in the market, right? Mm. And for the second reason why the Asian market hasn't recovered fully is because a large part of the Asian higher bond market is actually comprised of China property bonds,
4: mm.
3: right? And you know, recently in the space, the Chinese government is trying to clamp down on uh, debt levels over mm. there. Mm. They're warning about a potential bubble in the Chinese market. And this will result in these Chinese property developers finding a tougher time to refinance their bonds. And if that's the case, there will also be a slightly higher risk of default, mm. right? Because you can't refinance your bond how you going to start repaying the bonds that you already you know previously borrowed on? Mm, mm. So then they'll pay you more to yes, to, to get that premium to, so that they can continue to kick
1: the yeah. can down and yeah. keep rolling, keep yeah. rolling. Okay, okay. So so then, are there
3: um, tools in terms of very specific to the Chinese bond markets? Mm. So for I think for bonds, obviously you can buy directly, but you mm. because. For most bonds, are traded in denominations of USD two hundred k or Sing dollars two fifty k. These are meant more for you know high net worth investors yes, in Singapore. Yes, yes, yes. If let's for the say, lay guy for all of us. For, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and actually, yeah. even, even if you're a high net worth investor and you mm. have like let's say ten, you million, don't want to concentrate right on you, why, Yeah, yeah yes. you shouldn't be putting two point five percent of your cash in a single mm. bond issuer. Also, mm. anyways, mm. right? Mm. So the alternative is you can go through more diversified vehicles. So one way is ETFs. And the other way is mutual funds. Mm. For ETFs within, let's say, the local market, at least on SGX, um, mm. there are ETFs that trade China government bonds. So that is much, to me, is much safer. Mm. Um, there's yielding, let's say, about three, low 3% per annum, which I mm. think is still pretty decent. Do you consider that risk-free? Because um, it's, government so is the issuer, right? Correct. So mm. you have to look at the credit rating of the government also. So mm. for the China's government rating, it's, a, it's, a, it's rated A by S&P, mm. which is the same as Japan. Mm. Right. Mm. Um so I would say it's it's fairly safe. Mm. Right. To be rated mm. the same as Japan is fairly safe. Mm. But the thing that people need to note about investing in Chinese government bonds, uh, especially the the government bond ETF that's listed on SGX, is that the underlying bonds are traded in one min mm. So you're also taking this additional currency Exchange. risk, mm. even though, you know, when we trade on SGX it's traded in existing dollars. Mm. Yeah. But it could be a double-edged sword because if you are bullish about the P in the next two, three years, mm-hmm. that you could be another China driver. Will will be a world, driver right? of returns yes. for you also as it mm-hmm. continues to appreciate. Yes. Yeah. So
1: that, that's, the, that's the thing with a lot of products out there, right? It's like, yeah. you think it's a certain thing, you know, like you're, you're, trading, you're trading on SGX, you're using the SYNC dollar, you know, but underlying tool is, is China and it still trades in RMB. So there are multi-tiers. Yeah. I think people need to be a lot more aware, yeah. you know, mm. of, of these kind of yeah. things.
3: There's also an Asian high yield bond ETF that's traded on SGX. Mm. Uh, I think it's issued by by BlackRock Mm. or iShares. But the problem with it is that it's not very liquid. Mm. So if it's not very liquid, what happens is that there tends to be a slightly wider bid-ask spread. Mm. When you trade stocks, sometimes if you're buying a a stock that's $10, you see that the bid price is $10, the ask price is $10 and 1 cent. Mm. But if there is not enough liquidity... Instead of ten dollars and cents. ten cents, it will ten dollars and ten cents maybe. Mm. So that is a it's a cost that many people might not factor in. Mm. So one last question, one last question for both of you. I think we've explored
1: all these different tools, you know, from like trade endowment to like high yield bonds to cash management apps, you know, even CPF. Well, CPF top two like right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> everything, everything it's a it's part of this thing, right? Mm-hmm. So I just wanna um give our audience a little bit hypothetical right so if someone is just kind of just starting out you know making money you know a little bit into their career about 30 years or 35 Mm -hmm. you know have some sort of money sitting around you know how will you then and but they don't want to be too exciting in the stock market because i think a lot of people are generally i think there are a lot of people that are risk adverse you know of course you know we can talk about the the historical yield and all those kind of things that why you should you know, have some sort of portfolio in equity, you know. But if, let's say they don't want to be in equity. How how do you think
3: they should structure their portfolio then,
1: amidst all these different tools? I think I it's, it always
3: <laughs> it always goes back to your goal based investing, yeah, right? I was
1: mm. So
3: the yeah your six to twelve month kind of savings, I'll put it uh, the stuff that you actually need for day to day expenses definitely has to be in your bank, your traditional bank account. Mm. Anything else in, let's in say, the
1: future, it can be a digital bank
3: account, right? Yeah, maybe a okay. digital <laughs> bank account. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Then maybe for the additional, let's say, let's say three months of your savings in your traditional bank account, mm. additional six months could be in something that's a bit higher yielding, mm. right? It could be your cash management accounts by the global advisors uh, or the insurance savings accounts, right? Mm. For your next chunk of your cash that is for your medium-term goals, stuff that you need in your next two to three years, you also ca- needs to be in a relatively conservative type of investment. Then you can consider maybe potentially endowment plans, right? Because that comes with a guarantee. You know there's a guaranteed component to it already, mm and you can customize it to meet your goal that's happening in like four, three, four 3, 4 years time. For anything that's more than that, if you want something that's a bit less risky, I still think stocks are a good long-term investment. Anything that's more than like 10 years. Mm. Um, you know, I'm just citing an example, mm. right? If you had a 10-year investment period and you invested any time between the year 2000 and 2020, mm. right, you have gotten at least a 3% or higher return per annum if you had looked at the MSCI All-Country World Index. Mm. Obviously, this is backward-looking, right? Of so course, we, can't, we can't really foresee the future. Yeah. But, but just I
2: just a really broadly diversified ETF, mm. right? One more tilted towards the developed world and then one for emerging markets. Mm. If it's really well diversified and you're willing to hold that for a long period of time, and I think investing in stocks is actually not as... Crazy or, mm. or as exciting as a lot of people make it out to be, yeah. It nice. generally is more difficult mm. to look at bonds uh, because they tend to be a little bit more difficult for the person on the street to understand.
3: Mm. Yeah, and I think for the bond market now, like just now you mentioned, right, mm. the short term yields are low already. But at the same time, we still expect the long term yields to rise. Mm. So if you're entering the market at this point of time, you're actually faced with. Um, a very big dilemma, because lose-lose, and on top of that, you know, just now we mentioned that credit spreads are already very tight. Mm. So if you invested in a bond that's maturing in 10 years' time, you lose out from interest rates potentially rising, you lose out from potentially credit spreads widening also, Mm. and that will impact, both impact the value of your corporate bond. Fair, fair. So
1: either way, I think all in all, the idea is don't be afraid of the stock market, right? Yeah, don't (laughs) be afraid of the stock market. Don't be afraid of the stock market, be broadly diversified, you know, and if you have some other things that you need, other goals, and you can explore all these other tools that we have discussed mm. today.
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah. if they do select single stocks, I think that's where more of the risk can come from. Yeah. So right. if like, oh, I put 20% of my portfolio in Tesla, right? Mm. Oh, that exciting, huh? yeah, yeah, super exciting. <laughs> then, then that's where you might get a significant yeah. uh, dent in your portfolio if one stock crashes, yes, yes. right?
1: Single stock risk concentration. Yeah.
3: But I think if... Yeah. You, I, I still think that bonds are okay. But mm. it really depends on the investor, right? Like Let's say recently, you know, Singapore, we had an Astria bond that was issued. Mm. Strong subscription. Mm. And it's kind of like a... It's a 10-year bond, but there's a mandatory call at 5-year mark. Mm. And if you know that you're not going to use this money for the next 5 to 10 years, then, yeah. Mm. You mm. are able to weather out this mark to market yes. and volatility of the market in the next 2 to 3 years, potentially. Yes,
1: yes. Yeah. I, I fully understand what you're saying. Actually, the bond historical bond returns are actually very healthy also yeah. you know uh, not, not 10 years but you extend 100 years actually performs very well also you know but, but the problem is like what you two have pointed out it's not easy to understand right yeah. there, are, there are more moving parts in this thing and we can always have another conversation mm. you know sometime down the road thank you yeah. thanks for coming okay. on thank appreciate you.
0: Learned something useful today and truly appreciate that you took time off to better your life with the financial coconut. Knowledge is that much more powerful and interesting when shared, debated and discussed. Join our community telegram group, follow us on our socials, sign up for our weekly newsletter. Everything is in the description below. And if you love us and want to help us grow, definitely share the podcast with your friends and on your socials. Also, sign up for our members' backend for more investment-related content, live discussions, curated content, and most importantly, your commitment to us is a step forward for us to continue creating great content focused on you rather than advertisers. For more information, check out thefinancialcoconut.com. With that, have a great day ahead, stay tuned next week, and always remember, personal finance can be chill, clear, sustainable for all.
1: Okay, I have last three questions for uh, both Okay. We I mean, ask every single guest, okay? And, uh, the first one is, uh, what is a core life principle that you hold close to?
2: Okay, so I'll take that one. It's mm-hmm. not a principle per se, but we like to think about this concept called ikigai. That's I-K-I-G-A-I. Mm-hmm. I see you nodding. Do you um, know about it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Okay. I, will, re- I just finished reading uh, Wabi Sabi. Oh, really? Okay. yeah. We okay. might be here. <laughs> very hit,
2: very hit. So for <laughs> the listeners... Basically, this is a Japanese concept that outlines four objectives that people can have in life, right? Doing what you love, uh, doing what you're good at, doing what the world needs, and very importantly, doing what you can be paid for, Mm. right? Um, So whatever career you end up choosing, I think Peter and I have observed that, you know, there generally just tends to be an imbalance between the four maybe you don't feel like you're earning enough or maybe you don't feel that there's enough meaning in your work or whatnot. And there are two ways to compensate for it. So the first way is to work within the framework, right? You could, let's say, if you don't think your job is super meaningful, you can do pro bono on the side. Or let's say you think your 9 to 5 job is not earning you enough cash for some reason, you can try to earn money elsewhere, right? Mm And, but the second way is to work outside of the framework, and that is to usually it means setting up your own business or your own enterprise. And so for Peter and I, that's what we have done with respect to the InvestQuest and with Endowment Exchange. Uh, as Peter mentioned earlier, for Endowment Exchange, it was really important for us to have that social element to it. And for InvestQuest, we really wanted the flexibility to explore what we are interested in intellectually. Yeah, having that freedom.
1: Nice. Yeah. Okay, so next question. Okay. What is a personal finance advice that you feel
3: needs to be further propagated? Something that's more applicable to young adults, which is your personal net worth is actually comprised of two aspects. One aspect is your financial assets, mm-hmm. right? So your cash, your stocks, your bonds. Mm-hmm. The second aspect which is commonly overlooked is your human capital. Mm-hmm. In financial terms, that's actually your present value of your future earnings. Mm. And as a young person, bulk of your personal net worth is actually in your human capital, right? So you need to get this right first. Mm. And that would mean even as a you know, as growing up in secondary school, you should already be getting some sort of uh, career advice, right? And with that, hopefully, you can then, you know, build up the correct educational background, the correct skill sets. And also pursue something that eventually, you know, you are also personally interested in. Mm, mm. And hopefully that also works out in your favour, which brings you a good career, you know, rewards you financially mm. and also something that you find like purposeful at the end of the day mm. yeah. yeah I'm getting very concerned for your future kid
1: Second <laughs> <So laughs> no, school actually, must have career advice Peter already be,
2: Peter will be the more chill one I think I will be a tiger parent <laughs> yeah okay, okay. <laughs>
1: well, we'll see we'll see <laughs> okay yeah so oh, last question so, yeah. what is uh, your current life
3: focus what are you focusing on giving additional focus on so I will I will quote what Jack Ma said before. Mm. He said that when you are in your 20s to 30s, you should find a good boss, work for a good company and learn to do things in the correct way. Mm. When you are between 30 to 40 years old, you have more room to explore, right? Even if you fail, you're still okay at that point of time. When you are 40 to 50 years old, uh, that's when you should be focusing on doing what you do best, right? It's a bit more risky at that point to start to explore new ventures already. And when you are... 50 to 60 years old, take the time to then nurture the new generation and provide these mentorship opportunities. And once you're past 60, you need to spend more time with your grandchildren. So currently for for Deborah and myself...
2: You don't need to spend time (laughs) with your children, right, in any of those decades. (laughs)
3: So where we fit in would be the 30 to 40-year-old age range, right? which means that we have time to explore new ventures, Mm. which is what we're doing with the InvestQuest, what we're doing with Endowment Exchange. Uh but at the same time we also think that nurturing ourselves and developing our ourselves, both pers- on a personal basis and on a professional basis, I think that's something that we have been trying to do. I think at least we have been a bit late to the game with regards to let's say crypto assets, uh with regards to po- computer programming. But I think you know it's better late than never. So I think that's what we aim to learn next. Mm.
1: Nice. Thank you. Thanks for coming
2: on. I appreciate it. Oh, okay. You're welcome. Thank you so much Thanks for having us. Yeah.